So we're sitting down with the innovators, middle managers to CEOs who are on the front lines of digital transformation to see how they did it and what they learned. That's the important thing with change, right? Is that whether you're making change or adjusting to change, it's really about focusing on the people. So join us as we uncover gritty perspectives on turnaround jobs, prioritization, road mapping, user behavior insights, and scaling organizations. So we've got a really fun and enlightening conversation for you. It's with the Chief Digital Officer and Publisher of Merriam-Webster, Lisa Snyder. You'll hear about true digital transformation, leveraging mission and transparency, letting the world see who you truly are as a catalyst for transformation, as well as a, a new mobile app called Puku for kids. Oh, and you get to hear me get owned by a word expert. Let's get into it. All right, welcome everybody to the Innovation Engine podcast. Our guest today, Lisa Schneider, is the Chief Digital Officer and Publisher for Merriam-Webster. Lisa uh, leads the digital strategy and execution across product development, content strategy, user experience, and technology. Uh, Quite a a few different things there. Um, She has redefined the dictionary for the digital age, uh, changing people's perception of the brand from a dusty book on the shelf to a timely, relevant resource and commentary that users can turn to every day. Uh, under Lisa's leadership, Merriam-Webster has won numerous awards, including several Webby and Shorty Awards. And she herself is a Webby Awards executive judge and was recently featured on Ad Age Creativity 50 Folio, Top Women in, in Media and Business Transformation 100 lists. Lisa, thank you so much. for. We're honored to have you on. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Lisa, the, the theme that we're working on now is one about uh, growth and evolution. So kind of interested in learning a little bit more about what was happening at Merriam-Webster, because we all know it for the book that we may or may not have on the shelf anymore, but it seems like you guys are doing quite a lot these days. Um, We are. So first of all, one really interesting thing is people do still have the book on the shelf and print remains a profitable business line for us, um, which is terrific. But Yeah, you know, Merriam-Webster has been around for over 180 years and really did the the same thing uh, for for much of that time, which was great, right? They um, were really good at what they did and were very, very successful and had a huge amount of brand equity, sort of respect, trust, authority, um, and had put the website up, had put the dictionary content online for free in 1996. So they were actually very forward-thinking in that regard. But I will say when I joined the organization later in 2014, we really hadn't moved much beyond that. And so there was a great deal of opportunity to take this amazing brand. And I think that everybody that works at Merriam-Webster, we sort of feel like we've been given this national treasure um, to kind of guard and protect and, and take it very, very seriously. But that there was so much opportunity and so many more things that we could do. And that really, to me, the challenge was thinking about what does it mean to be a dictionary in the 21st century? And also really thinking about a core mission. And a mission is not what you do, but it's why you do it. And so we wrote dictionary definitions. And that's what we did for you know, uh, over 100 years. That's not a mission. And so I thought about 
why it was so important. You know, how come when a recruiter called me and said, do you want to look at a job at Merriam-Webster? I said, yes, you know, yes, I do want to look at a job at Merriam-Webster. And then I came in and I was so excited to be there. I thought my colleagues were amazing and smart and funny and I was learning so much. And none of that was really reflected in the brand voice on the outside. And so we came up with a mission statement that was um, number one, to propagate our rational love of the English language, but number two, to help people understand and use language better so they can better understand and communicate with the world around them, right? This is why we're passionate about what we do. We care about language. We really believe that words matter, you know, not just a slogan. And so articulating that mission suddenly made it clear that we can do other things besides write dictionary definitions based on our experience, based on our authority that help people that need to come to the dictionary in different ways and really extend our product offering and the services and products that we provide and extend our brand voice, et cetera. And all of a sudden we had this whole new road open up to us. That's amazing. So, and and what I what I love about that too is 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 your leveraging of the concept of mission as a as a centrifugal force. Yeah. How did you come up with that? Did you is that something that you had to uncover? Did you come to the role with that mission in mind? You're like, hey, I I know exactly what I want to do here. It's this, or or was that an iterative process? How did you how did you come up with that? So it was in between. Um, I certainly didn't come into the organization with it. But as I came into the organization and I saw what was going on, I saw what the opportunities were and also what the blocks were, uh, right? There was a mindset. It was definitely a, that's the way we've always done it mindset. And again, that's something that had worked really, really well for over a century, you know, but we did have certain approaches, whether they were, you know, workflows or um, attitudes or what have you that, that really were you know, from the, from the middle of the 20th century. And so looking at how do we change that, it, it was clear to me that articulating the mission would, would show people why it was okay to do things differently. And the, I just wrote it. <laughs> I just wrote that mission, like, because that was what I was experiencing. I could see it, right? I came in from the outside and I could see it. You know, and and I think internally it wasn't as clear, um, but but for me coming in, you know, we were having so much fun every day. People geek out about language. They are always having conversations. You know, people follow us on social media, and I say, you know, gee, if you like our Twitter, you really should see our Slack. I mean, just Slack is really <laughs> a lot of fun, and so it was there. You know, it was there, and and my job was to package it, to to see it, and to package it, and to understand how to leverage it. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean that's so it's so powerful that that reframing basically of of you you're not you all are not are not saying what is obviously clear here in in the culture um, already and so and that that packaging ones being incredibly important is is it fair to say that that packaging then also like that mission becomes the the tool that you leverage for alignment in the organization as you as you work through this transition? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we ask ourselves right: Does this fit in this mission? Um, and, you know, is this something that we would be proud to do? And so if those answers are yes, then we know that that's something that we can look at. There might be other issues in terms of, right, what does that business look like and risk and reward and resource allocation, but all those questions are secondary to, you know, is this something that fits our mission that makes sense for our brand? You know, we've been around for all of this time, so we don't have uh, a big sense of like, oh, well, you know, it's not a startup. Like, ah, oh, you know, if we crash, we still have the startup credit school. Um, that's that's not where we are. Right, right. 
That's amazing. What a what a true digital transformation. Um, and sorry, Jess, I don't mean to to jump out of order a little bit, but I I, I did want to since we're on this topic, how do you how do you pace that evolution then? Um, because I mean, obviously, you've got the starting question, which is does it fit? But how do you how do you address pace? Well, we look. We started slowly. Um, there hadn't been much change at this organization, and so you do have to read the room a little bit and you have to get a sense of what the tolerance is. You have to figure out what you can do that will work. And then when people see it works, then they're interested to do more. But you can't go in and just rip it all up. And certainly you can't do that at an organization like Merriam-Webster that is so dependent upon legacy knowledge. We have some folks who will be retiring later this year who have been with Merriam-Webster for over 40 years. So you don't come in from the outside. I have all these great new ideas. I'm going to bring in some new people to execute them. So you really need to understand how to lead change management. And these stories always, you know, there's that middle part that nobody tells, right? So the story is I had this great idea. And now, you know, we're the darling of Twitter and we won all these awards. And there's the big block in between. Mm -hmm. So we did actually start with social media. And the reason that we started with social media was because of what I just told you, right? We're having these great conversations inside the office. It's super interesting. It's a little bit nerdy. It's quite a bit funny. It's very, very smart and everybody is interested in language. So I went to my boss at the time who um, also has since retired. He was John Morris and he was president of Merriam-Webster for many, many years. And I said, you know, we're having so much fun here. Why don't we just pull back the curtain and show people who we really are? And the initial reaction to that um, sort of across the board was like, well, that makes me very nervous. You know, you're talking about we're a dictionary publisher. Maybe a new dictionary edition went out every 10 years. They they like worked on something for a decade. You know how much proofreading went into this? And the idea that you're just gonna start shooting stuff out on social media and and just posting on Twitter without three layers and that it's not gonna be sort of this stolid corporate voice, but it's gonna be something smart and funny. I mean, people were just very uncomfortable. Unfortunately, John really believed in me and we started doing this and it did take some time to gain traction. But once it gained traction, um, people really loved it. And then internally, as people saw how much people loved it and how effective it was to get that voice out there and to show people who we really were, then they were energized to do more because they saw that it was the right thing and they saw that it worked and they saw that it was good for the brand. And then they were energized to do more. And so fast forward a couple of years, right? And now we're in the unprecedented situation of the global (laughs) pandemic. And we have been doing things very, very quickly that never never this team could have done before. And some of these folks are new hires, but some of them are people who were here before I got there, right? And who have been there, if not for 40 years, for 20 years, for 25 years. And they're doing things differently now and they're moving quickly and they're being agile, right? With a lowercase a. So if you haven't gone on Twitter, they are, as a gift to our friends, in a time of crisis, we'll be keeping a thread here of beautiful, obscure, and quite often useless words. So if you're looking for that little bit of humor in your day, I would definitely yeah. check that out. And I, and I think it's really interesting that you say that because a lot of times digital transformation ends up with tens of millions of dollars out the door and nothing to show for it. And so instead, you kind of actually started with something that didn't require a transformation, but helped 
put your toe in, get a, get a taste of it, get a piece of it so that you start building momentum in the organization, which I think is really interesting. And it's a shift in tone, right? And, and I think that's kind of, how did you settle into a tone that is somewhat nerdy and a little snarky? Because I don't think that necessarily aligns with where you might've started from. Um, so I will answer that question, but I, I first want to say that you know a big platform of mine is that transformation is more than just technology. And when you so when you say you didn't start with transformation, I think I want to be super kind of persnickety and say we didn't start with technology, um, <laughs> although we did move into that very quickly after. But but transformation is more than just technology. And it, you know, it is mindsets and it is that whole ecosystem and it's understanding that ecosystem and it's change leadership and technology by itself, right? That's a tool. It's just a tool. You know, we're very excited by it. Listen, I'm, I'm working technology, but it's just, it's just a tool. Um, and transformation is really strategic and a mindset. So I'll tell you, this is a true story, which is that one day I was answering an email on my iPad and I have no idea why. I must have been testing you know, some app or something else there because I don't usually use that as a productivity device. And I happened to type very, very quickly and the iOS autocorrect is very, very aggressive. And I wanted to type yes, like with a lot of S's and a bunch of exclamation marks to, to show my enthusiasm for the project at hand. And I kept missing the chance to X out their autocorrect and, end up, and ended up with YES. I was very frustrated. I went into Slack and I complained that this happened. And I said, I guess autocorrect doesn't want me to sound like a teenage girl. <laughs> and our lexicographer, Emily Brewster, immediately, immediately responds, autocorrect has no idea of the power of teenage girls to change language. <laughs> you say to me, how did you come up with that tone? I'm telling you, we pulled back the curtain, did not come yeah. up with anything. We just decided to show people who we really are, right? We delight in language and we geek out about this. And smart people tend to be sometimes a little bit snarky and funny. And so it just, this is who we really are. I think there's a long run to be a smart Alec or the other one that people like to use. You have to start with the smart part. And so, and 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 I think it's delightful that someone who is from Merriam-Webster is persnickety about technology. And I think it's a great point because a lot of times I've done a lot of these transformation projects. So like, what are you going to build and what's going to make it in and how much is it going to cost? And the first step is like, okay, so what are we doing? <laughs> are we, right, why? My favorite <laughs> word, you know, this is the other thing, right? I can make everybody's jaw drop because they'll say to me, you work at the dictionary, what's your favorite word? And they're looking for me to say something like either like very beautiful and mellifluous or very obscure that no one's heard of. And they'll be very, you know, terribly impressed with my vocabulary. And my favorite word is why, right? Because why solves problems and why gets things done. And so don't underestimate the power of small words, but right, what's your strategy? Why do you want to do it? We've done plenty of technology. We built a new CMS and we completely restructured the dictionary database. So if you haven't noticed, English is kind of a hot mess. And so that was a really big and hard project. Um, and we, you know, we moved our, our stack to the cloud and we're on AWS now. Like there's, you know, there's plenty of tech transformation that was a part of this, but it was more about what is the strategy, right? How are we looking, you know, now and in the future to connect with our audiences in new ways on new, how do we deliver value this to help people understand language technology to do that, but we're not starting there. Yeah, that's so great. And one of the things that shows through as you, as you talk is, is how sentient of a leader you, you are um, in terms of being able to think about the pace of change, 
um, and how you you guide the organization to leverage, as you say, technology as a tool, that the transformation is not about technology. It's about leveraging technology to help with the mission, right? Like that, that's such an, a fantastic uh, a way to... Um, to frame that up so that you know people can find themselves in that in the application of technology to the uh, to the goals of that mission, um, kind of being a better version of what you already had rather than um, something completely different, because um, that, that it seems like you're, you're leveraging digital to express uh, Merriam-Webster's uh, strength uh, and culture um, rather than the other way around. Exactly, and it also encourages people to understand that they can be part of this. And so we have a lot of people who previously had nothing to do with technology, who all of a sudden are helping to identify what that new data structure looks like, because who knows the data structure of the language better than the actual lexicographers. And so we've got a bunch of folks now who are sort of having a foot in each world and and working on projects that they never would have come into their department in the past. And so, you know, that's another piece of it. And and I don't always love these buzzwords, but breaking down the silos and creating cross-functional teams, you know, including editorial and lexicographers, you know, in the development process and making sure that they have a voice in that is really important as well. So, so with that, oh, sorry, I, the, the, the question that I wanted to push into just a little bit here is the, is the, how, how do you know that it's working? Like the, as you, as you set out on this journey, what are some of the signals that you look for, whether they be the KPIs or otherwise, like, cause it, it is interesting. The types of things you're talking about are very uh, experiential um, in nature, qualitative, so I'm curious, what do you what do you look for to know that you're on or off target? So again, you, you really have to understand what is the effort I'm making? What do I expect out of this? And, and but what does that ecosystem look like? And so going back to starting with social media as an example, social media is, to be honest, not a huge driver for us. That is not where we get most of our traffic. Um, and so if you just looked at that as a KPI, you might say, eh, you know, not so great. But what social media did, if you look at, take a step back and look at the ecosystem, was it got people paying attention to Merriam-Webster. It got people talking about Merriam-Webster. Related to social media um, is we created a new feature. We can see in real time what, what words people are looking up. And prior to the last couple of months, those top lookups really didn't change very much. Um, so they might have shifted around in order, but they really didn't change very much. And they were these sort of like slightly squishy SAT words that people roll their eyes and you know think that you should know what they mean, but they're sort of nuanced or they depend on context. And so, you know, ubiquitous and nefarious and serendipity and like, you know, those types of words are the types of words that were in the top lookups. And so if some other words suddenly jumped into the top lookups, it meant that so many people were looking it up all at the same time that it went into the top lookups. And so something must have caused that. And usually we could tie that back to something that happened on the national stage. So it might have been politics and certainly for a time it was and, and can continue to be politics, but it could have been from sports, right? There was a huge game and a sports announcer said something about three years ago, the Cubs were in the World Series and the announcer used the word irregardless and suddenly Twitter blew up, right? It's not a word, irregardless is a word. Um, but Twitter blew up thinking it's not a word and they came to the dictionary and we had a huge spike on irregardless. And so we is created it this, it is a word. I thought it, it was just a, a princess bride. 
It is a word. Okay. Um, it's marked as non-standard, but it is okay. a word. So you don't have to use it, but I don't like I it does not mean it's not a word. <laughs> um, and so this, so this feature that we created paired very well with social media, right? To mm. let people know, you know, looking up a word in the dictionary um, traditionally is sort of a very private act, right? I'm not sure about something and I go to look it up. So knowing that other people are looking up the same thing as you is interesting, or just knowing, even if you didn't, right? Knowing that people's thoughts are coalescing around this topic and that it drove interest um, is, is interesting. And so we share the data. We're not commenting on the word usage most of the time. We're just sharing the data that it was looked up. And so this, this was a feature that we created, right? And we built these tools to kind of ping us. And we've got a nice little bot and it'll ping us in Slack and tell us that something trended. And so again, it is the technology, but it's more about, we think this is really interesting. Language is a part of culture. Right. And when something happens and people are curious, they still turn to the dictionary, which of course we think is great, um, but is very interesting. And so it paired very well. So when we started posting on social media about these real time lookups, journalists started paying attention. And so they started covering us. So think about the value of that PR when organically you end up in the Atlantic and in the New York Times and in the LA Times and, you know, on and on and on. And we were in, you know, Box and Mike and we were in BuzzFeed and we're in People and Entertainment Weekly, right? It's across the board, just this slew of media um, that is interested in what Merriam-Webster has to report and has to say, then you get all of this press attention. You get for SEO, all of these inbound links, because right, they pick us up and they say, you did this. So now you're creating this very amazing ecosystem that is not just about, oh, did I post and somebody clicked on my link? So you become part of a broader conversation. Yeah, exactly. And then that, that enhanced visibility and then being a relevant and part of the conversation opens up a lot of other potential opportunities to oh. engage. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we've got a dictionary API, which one can license. And you can imagine that the more, right, people are talking about Merriam-Webster, the more you see us in, you know, in the media or on social media, or you hear other people talking about it, then you say like, oh, we could do this thing and we'll license, you know, we'll go to Merriam-Webster, we'll license. And so, you know, again, that's, that's a combination of that halo effect that you're talking about, that now people come and they want to partner with us. And then, of course, we rebuilt our API. It's now a shiny new sort of perfect JSON API with beautiful, outstanding documentation. So there's the tech side, right? Mm-hmm. But but the, the technology drives a little bit more use of the API and the halo effect of the brand drives a lot more use of the API. Yeah, so yep. which then justifies the investment. Yeah, sorry, Jess, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is I think a lot of people, that that series of events from I've got some engagement to I've got I've got some interest becomes engagement. And then how do you make that big leap from engagement to being able to monetize something? Mm. Um, it depends on the thing. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're talking about the social media, right, it's a little bit less of a direct line. Um, and so it really depends. And I think that is the question, right? And being able to play out that chess game and being able to understand the entire ecosystem and not just think in a very narrow way about sort of the singular product is the question, right? That's the higher level strategy. And that's the question, right? How does this all work together? What will this drive? You know, is this a vanity project? Um, you know, is this a loss leader? And you might make a deliberate decision that something's a loss leader, and, but that should be a deliberate decision, 
Um, you know, what is the monetization strategy, right? Playing out that chess game and not just getting excited about an idea because there are a lot of things that, that sound great and they sound fun. Uh, and, and if you don't play out that chess game and realize where it might fall off a cliff, you know, you might be able to solve for that. It might not be ultimately a roadblock, but you need to play out that chess game and see where those drop-offs are and then understand if that's something you can work around or not. Scott and I are having a nerd off, so I'll be <laughs> like, we want to, I don't want to know about this thing. Thing, so I'll let you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm, I'm totally geeking out over here. It's great. Oh my God. Um, so delightfully nerdy. This is great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as life lifelong committed nerd, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize uh, all of this is great. Um, so, I, you know, one one question that that comes up uh, frequently, well, it comes up in my career certainly, and I, and I would imagine it does for you as well. As a leader who's leading through growth, do you find yourself outside your comfort zone, outside your area of expertise, and and how do you navigate that? Um, I think a lot of our listeners find themselves in spots they never imagined themselves in, and so I'm curious. How do you how do you sustain through through those moments? First of all, I think if you don't find yourself in those positions, you're probably doing it wrong um, <laughs> because things are changing so quickly. And again, this is one of those like the world is changing so rapidly. But it is true. I mean, I have two kids, and I tell my kids, your job is to learn how to learn. Hmm. Right? Listen, my job did not exist when I was in high school. Their jobs might not exist now. So you have to learn how to learn. You have to be okay going out of your comfort zone, right? And that thing, that that drop-off in the chess game might be, I don't know what that is. And so I think, you know, part of being a good leader is really having humility and going, I don't know, but I could go figure it out, right? I said this to a boss once when I was very young. He was like, oh, that's good. He said, you know how to do whatever it was. And I said, well, Scott, I don't know, but I can figure it out. <laughs> and so, you know, go like, go find information, ask colleagues, you know, reach out to people, say, I need to learn this. So what gives you, like, so I, I completely agree. And I think that that learning mindset is so important, that growth, that kind of growth mindset and bring that to the, to the role. So how do you bring confidence into that though, that, that you're the right person to take that on or, or how do you, how do you navigate that with, with the kind of confidence that you need to then act as a, as a leader in, in new space? I think people are okay. I think it's a it's a misnomer and super dated. And I actually think it grates on people the wrong way if you present yourself as knowing everything and having all of the answers. So I think if you present yourself as what you are, which is have a lot of experience, here are the things I've been able to do. Based on that, here's what I see. And then here are some things that we don't know. Let's all go together and figure it out. Whether I go figure it out, we go together and figure it out. I ask you to figure it out and come back and report. It, that That is okay. And I think that people respect that. And then they also really trust that when you do say something, right, with confidence that you're not just blowing hot air and you're not covering up. And so being willing to say, I don't know, doesn't mean that you don't have confidence and it doesn't mean you're not the right person to lead and it can engender a lot of trust. I so agree with that. And it, it's, uh, it, yeah, and I think that, that that level of transparency, that authenticity is so important to the trust that you then need. That interpersonal trust is also what you need to then lead through those transformations, right? Those are, the, yeah. that's uncomfortable. That uncertainty is not just yours. It's for everybody around you as well. And for to be able to engage that in a healthy way, it can be very a very strong part of the uh, the invitation to to join the transformation. <laughs> We've had an interloper. Um, this is my favorite part of <laughs> um, 
Zoom work at home Zoom calls is getting to see cute littles because my youngest is 12. <laughs> For those of you listening to this on audio, Bess uh, has been joined by her daughter. Uh, so <laughs> she has yeah, joined our My, aw, my has, uh climbed up on my lap and Hi. she's She's hanging out. Um, we are going to play. I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about your guys' new app. So yeah, we're going to so, play, downloaded that and we're going to play that a little bit later. Um, I'm excited to hear that. Yeah, we created a new app called Puku. It's a vocabulary learning app for kids ages um, about 8 to 12. And sort of fitting in with that mission statement that we talked about, right? How do we help people understand and use language better so they can better understand and communicate with the world around them? Um, and what we had learned was that there was a real gap. And you know, not everybody knows, but Merriam-Webster has dictionaries for every age level. And so we have an elementary dictionary, which is for elementary school, intermediate, high school, the, the dictionary that most people think of with the red cover and the big bullseye logo. And the main website is, is our collegiate dictionary, right? A dictionary on a, on a college level. But we do have all these other level dictionaries. And so we've always been interested in um, helping people at, at all ages and levels. We also have a learner's dictionary, which is for English language learners. So um, it's specifically targeted to people who are learning English as a second or, or subsequent language. It's, it's actually amazing. It's really, it's a, it's a great resource. But so when we were thinking about, again, you know, here's our content, here's our mission. How do we, how do we go out and create products that really provide value and help people? And we did go out and talk to parents and, and learn that there was this gap. You know, there's such a focus, ABC Mouse and those types of tools on the really early education. And parents were saying, when I, when my kids get a little bit older, right, I'm stuck. I, there are no tools for them. They've used these other tools. They've tapped out of them. They've gone through the content. And so we realized that there was an opportunity for us to take this dictionary content that we've been creating for a long time and turn, you know, kids not going to sit with the dictionary, let's be real, <laughs> into a digital tool that is fun, right? That's rewarding and that kids can use to do that. And we've got somebody on our team, Damian Yambo, who, um, you know, has a degree in education, worked as a teacher for many years, has experience building educational apps, and so really worked with them and a development partner preloaded to create this app that was, you know, sort of very thought through from a pedagogical, right, an educational perspective, uses self-determination theory to make sure that we're doing this in a way that is really um, engaging for kids, but in a positive way, not in a like you're addicted to this bad feedback, but actually, you know, giving really positive and good feedback. And so you can, you know, you can go in and and sign up and just, you know, start playing. You can just start playing and it's good for you, but there's also categories by, you know, interest. So there are vocabulary lists for books or for mythology or for, you know, food. If, you know, all these kids are home cooking and you want to look at the food vocabulary or whatever it is, or you can make your own list. So again, with all, like we did this, this launched last September, but I will say now we're starting to realize this is a really good uh, homeschool tool because, you know, if you've got your kids at home and they're working on whatever subjects they're working on, you can make your own vocabulary list within the app. It's automatically populated with Merriam-Webster definitions, and then kids have those lists that they can practice. So um, again, just another way to kind of meet people's needs. Yeah, I, I, that, that's fantastic. I have a I have a seven year an advanced seven year old and a and a and a, a very uh, gregarious but very a normal academically uh, ten year old. Um, so it's, I think both of them <laughs> could benefit a great deal from that. Yeah. Definitely going to check that out. That's cool. 
I do have one somewhat related. I feel like in our industry, if people who work in these times, we're always coming up, we're always debating definitions and what's a user experience designer versus a product manager. What's agile <laughs> versus scrum? So from from the experts, how do you how do you define terms? Because I think in so many organizations, there's so much confusion because there's all these terms. Some of them are known publicly. Some of them are specific to the organization. And and if I have to sit in one more conversation debating what something means, I think I'm going to kill myself. So how how what you, is you know that's coming? Yes, oh my god, that'll happen like in two hours. We're gonna be on another um, one. All right. So there's two different questions here, and I'll happily answer both of them. And and one is how do you, as in we, Merriam Webster, define things? And then the other is how do you address this this type of issue internally? And I think those are very different answers. Mm-hmm. So Merriam Webster is really interesting. We are a lag indicator. We are not a leader in definitions. Um, and people will often meet me and find out what I do, and then they'll say, "That's so cool." And I'll say, yes, it is. And then they'll say, can you get a word into the dictionary? And I'm like, I am chief digital officer and publisher of Merriam-Webster. I cannot get a word into the dictionary because I do not own English. (laughs) And so we have very rigorous criteria for entering words into the dictionary. I like to say, actually, that we've been data-driven for almost 200 years. Words have to have widespread, long-term, meaningful, and organic use. And so widespread means that it's used in a wide variety of text. Obviously, today, that text we can find anywhere, right? It could be on Twitter. It can be anywhere, but in a wide variety of text. Um, Long-term means that it is used over a period of time in such a way that indicates an established member of our vocabulary and not like a flash in the pan that's going to go away in a month. Meaningful sounds really obvious, but it's not. So when I was a kid, um, and you said, what's the longest word in the dictionary? Somebody would say anti-disestablishmentarianism. But that is a word that you could reverse engineer what it means um, from all of the combining parts, but is never actually used with any meaning. And it's not actually used with any meaning. We don't enter it into our dictionary. Um, and organic use means that all of this has to happen, actually happen by people using the language and not through petitions. So, you know, we'll get changed or this word should mean this or this word should not mean that or, you know, this is a horrible slur. And it's like, yes, there are horrible slurs because people are horrible, um, but the word exists and somebody needs to define it in, a, in an objective and calm way. So that's how we enter words. So we don't actually decide what they mean, but we do collect and analyze evidence of words in use. And that is, you know, look, language changes, right? We still have a job because language changes. So ghost used to mean one particular thing, and now it means that. And also, like, I left without saying goodbye. So there's enough evidence. And so ghost is now, that sense of ghost is now in the dictionary. So so that's Merriam-Webster. But I think internally, right? This is a matter, again, of diplomacy and communication. And what I want to say is it it doesn't matter. What matters is that you agree on the terms. And so it's really... When people dig their heels in, I mean, this goes back to why. When people dig their heels in, this means this. It's like, this means this to me and that to you. Let's just agree. Can we just agree on a set of terms that we'll use internally? 
you know, and for you as an agency, that might be a little bit discombobulating because I can imagine you have to go to this client and they use it one way and that client and they use it another way. And again, that's your diplomacy job to sort of read the room and say, you know, can we say that, you know, here in our agency, we kind of have a standard set of terminology or does that feel like stepping on toes and we'll just have to go along to get along? But what's important is that the team agrees that, that we understand each other when we use these terms, right? It is like any other communication and it is like any other part of leadership where your job is to make sure that things are clear to everybody. And it really, honestly, it's less important, right? I have in mind what I think a UX designer is versus something else versus something else. But, you know, I can articulate that. But ultimately, the important thing is, are the people on the team that are doing the project, do we all understand the same thing? And that's more important than winning the actual sort of mini battle of, but I think this term should be this. Like, really, who cares? We just need to understand each other. And that's what, or I get frustrated is when it feels like navel gazing. Like, I don't need an umpteenth blog post about what the difference is. I just need right. to know who I'm asking, who's doing what, and do yes. we all get it? And are we getting it done? Um, yes, are we getting it done? Love that. I'm okay with a decoder ring, frankly. Like, as long as right. we can I want to get to the work. Um, no, yeah. But yes, for, I will switch language. If I talk to three different clients in three days, uh, over the course of the day, I will change language three times, three right. or four times. Code switching. I'm like, oh, here, that that means this, and and then you onboard yeah. somebody, and you go through the list. Of, here's all here's all the funky internal words that they use. Yep. So that you can make it easier for someone. So yeah. this has been phenomenal. It's awesome. Thank you. This is great. So wonderful. But I got to close it out with uh, two questions that we we like to ask. Um, all of our guests. Uh, the first one is, what is something you always look for on a team that tells you if it's healthy or not? Oh, so I think you can tell if a team is healthy overall, if people, for the most part, bring things up in a group versus constantly like sidebarring or back channeling. And let's be fair and honest, everyone sidebars and back channels mm-hmm. sometimes. But I think if that's if people are not comfortable speaking up and that's the only way things get around, then that's really a signal that you don't have trust and transparency and communication on the team. And that should really be a red flag. Sometimes it's useful, I find, and, and Scott and I do this, really, like, am I being ridiculous? And sometimes I need the back channel to be like, yes, yes, you are. Yes, yes, you are. Right. And that's why I said it happens sometimes because again, right, like, listen, I was I'm in this technology world. I was an English major. And so, but I will tell you what I learned by reading books that span hundreds of years is guess what? Human psychology has not changed. Right. (laughs) So you do need to go back to your buddy for a gut check, or you do need to have your person that will tell you the truth. Right. They'll be like, yes, you're overreacting. Yeah, you were kind of a jerk at that meeting. Go walk it back. And, you know, like, yes, so that's fine. The question is, is that the only way that things get around? And if it's the only way things get around, that's a problem. Definitely have seen that and, and work with yeah. clients for the last several years. So other question, um, what piece of technology, analog software or hardware that is not your phone, uh, can you not live without? Um, I cannot live without pen and paper to make lists. And I will tell you that because you said analog, 
Um, yeah. Again, yeah. right? Human psychology is not, there is nothing like making a list. And there is speaking of, you know, can send all the blog posts and the research of the sort of hand mind connection that physically writing out notes does create a different and more substantial pathway in the mind. And I will tell you that, as I mentioned, our, you know, satellite office here in New York is entirely digital. Everybody, every, it's not just me, everybody shows up at meetings with a pen and a notepad. Um, much more so that nobody's like taking notes into their, you know, Google Doc. They're writing it down. Also, making cross-offs on a list is exceedingly satisfying. Now, do you <laughs> add the things you've already done so you can cross them off? I have been known to do that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I totally do that. It's a, it's I, a brilliant I, guilty pleasure. Yeah, it's a brilliant guilty. It's like, I did it, I get credit for it, and I get to cross it off. And then my list looks good with all those cross-offs. I'm getting that yeah. shot of dopamine, dang it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the conversation. And and definitely anyone listening, uh, follow them on Twitter. They're really smart and funny. Uh, and check out that new app, Puku, P-U-K-U, in whatever app store you use. Thank you so Thank much. You. It was great talking with you guys. Yeah, this is really wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit us at threepillarglobal.com. <laughs>